This audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to Session 14, Theology of the Holy Spirit, from the series Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. This session was recorded live at Beit Sor Fellowship. All right. So we're starting in Session 14 of our study on Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Um, So just a quick recap of kind of where we've been lately. Um, We're at session 14 now. Well, if we go all the way back to sessions one to three, that's where we did uh, introduction and historical background on the topic of the Holy Spirit. We looked at the Holy Spirit in Christian history, the Holy Spirit in Jewish history, and kind of uh, the history of ideas going on there. In sessions four to seven, we did a survey of the scriptures on the topic, right? So we looked at the Holy Spirit in the Tanakh, in the Gospels, in the Book of Acts, in Paul's letters, and and onward. Then, in sessions eight to 13, we were focusing on the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, And we gave special attention to the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy. We just wrapped up talking about the gift of healing. So that brings us to today and uh, there are several more topics i want to cover in order to complete our series and so um here's a rough outline of what i'm hoping to get through we have session 14 which we're in right now on talking about the theology of the holy spirit session 15 flesh versus spirit session 16 filled with the spirit what that means Session 17, Power versus Sensationalism. Session 18, Spiritual Warfare. Session 19, Living by the Spirit. And Session 20, Revival. So basically, these are all kind of random odds and ends that didn't fit into any of the previous sections. (laughs) And so I stuck them all at the end. Uh, But most of these topics pertain to practical application of everything we've been already learning about right Uh, we've been learning a lot about the holy spirit and it's time we start talking about putting it into practice Uh, having said that our current session is going to be a bit of a digression from that theme of keeping it practical Um, today we're going to talk about the theology of the holy spirit so what i mean by that is we're going to be focusing on the person of the Holy Spirit or you know answering some of those questions who or what is the Holy Spirit and that sort of thing most of the time in conventional Christian uh, studies of the Holy Spirit uh, it's divided into two broad sections you've got the person of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit so lots of lots of theologies of the Holy Spirit are divided into those two sections the person and the work of the Holy Spirit right most of our study so far has been focused on the work of the Holy Spirit. What does he do, right? What does the Holy Spirit do? Uh, how, do the, how do the gifts of the Spirit work in our lives? Um, you know, how does the Spirit work in our hearts? That sort of thing. But in contrast, um, a lot of Christian theology, especially in the early church, was focused on the person of the Holy Spirit. That was the big, the big uh, controversial debates that went on was over the person of the holy spirit you know questions about his nature uh, his being the all these philosophical kind of concepts like that Um, in our day that's not so much the major focus of the controversy about the holy spirit people tend to argue more about the work of the holy spirit than about the person of the holy spirit today Um, i'll admit i've been Putting this session off, <laughs> I haven't wanted to uh, to go through this um, for a couple reasons. First of all, I think most people find it more boring uh, to talk about theology, the philosophical kind of concepts and things like that. Um, also, it's it's kind of abstract. It's, it, it can seem that way at least, right? It's less practical, right? We're not, you know, we're talking about like um, things that seem to be seem to be more theoretical than practical, right? Now, I hope 
we'll see that there are some practical implications of all this. Uh, so it's an important thing that I think we need to talk about. Um, but another reason is that historically, uh, particularly in Christian theology, uh, there tends to be a focus on Greco-Western philosophical modes of thinking that at times are foreign to the scriptures, right? So, you know, in this series, we're focusing on understanding the Holy Spirit from a Hebraic perspective, a Messianic Torah perspective, um, and there's going to be, you know, there's a difference. There's a difference between a Greek mentality and a Hebrew mentality, right? And when ta and bringing up all these questions about the nature of the Holy Spirit and who or what is the Holy Spirit, we're kind of delving more into Greek territory than Hebrew territory, right? So, you know, and don't get me wrong, like, theology is not just for the Greeks, right? I mean, everyone has a theology. Jewish people throughout history have always had theologies, right? Everyone has a theology, but um, the focus of the specific questions being asked in conventional Christian theology, especially in the early church, were very philosophical from a Greek-minded perspective. So anyway, and all that, I'm hoping in this session that we can try and keep our mooring in a more Hebrew understanding of the scriptures um, and try and maintain a Hebrew perspective while at the same time addressing some of these questions that come up and hopefully we'll be able to go through that. So I think this session is important. I think it's something that needs to be talked about, but I don't want to overstate this case, <laughs> if that makes sense. I don't want to spend too much time on this. Um, so but there are some important questions that it raises when we're talking about the theology of the Holy Spirit. Um, some of these questions are, is the Holy Spirit a person? Now, what do we mean when we say person? Anyone have any suggestions? What is it, what's a person? A, a distinct entity from the Godhead, yeah? What else might might be entailed in the word person. A living being, yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, the word person is, it's, yeah, an entity with his or her own will, right? Classically, a person has been defined as having a mind, a will, and emotions right? You've got your own, you make your own decisions, you do your own thinking, and you feel things, right? That makes you a person. If you don't have all three, you might not be a person, right? So we can all do a questionnaire after this to make sure we're all people. <laughs> but, um, so, you know, so we're asking this about the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit a just uh, like a poetic way of describing God's presence and power, right? Is it kind of like, you know how the Bible talks about God's arm? It talks about his face. Is the Holy Spirit just like that, another metaphor for talking about God? Um, or is the Holy Spirit something more unique, right? So those are, those are the kinds of things that people are talking about with the word person. Um, Another way of asking that is, is the Holy Spirit an it, or is it a he? Is he a he? Or, or even a she? There is some that suggest the Holy Spirit is a she. So, right? Like, you know, then we're getting into the gender of the Holy Spirit. That's a gender issues or thorny issues in our day. Um, is the Holy Spirit God? Is, is the Holy Spirit divine, Right? What would be the alternative if the Holy Spirit wasn't God? I guess maybe kind of like an angel, right? Maybe the Holy Spirit would be a creature, like an angel of some sort, special type of being that was created by God. Or is it God himself, right? These are some of the questions. Uh, how does the Holy Spirit have an independent will or personality from God the Father, right? Is it a person? Should... Here's another question. This is a little more practical compared to the rest. Should we pray to the Holy Spirit? 
Is it appropriate for us to address the Holy Spirit in prayer? It's a legitimate question, right? And that pertains to our theology of the Holy Spirit. So, um, so in this session, our approach is we're going to do um, very briefly look at some history of theology. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but then we're going to dive into, well, what's the biblical evidence for all this, right? What are some of the, what are some of the passages of scripture that would help answer these questions? So, okay, Christian theology. In the history of Christian theology, talking about the person of the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of discussion about that in the early church. And we went through this already in session two, uh, so I don't want to, uh, we don't need to go through all that again. But basically, uh, this is the Trinitarian debates, where they're debating about and defining God, right? So, uh, we have the Council of Nicaea in 325, and the Council of Constantinople in 381 that took place. And those two councils uh, more or less defined the Trinity as it, as it has been accepted ever since in Orthodox theology, right? In, in conventional mainstream Christian theology. Uh, so, and that's basically defined as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one in essence, but three in persons. That's the distinction they try to make, right? And so, so this definition of God was meant to counter uh, ideas that were deemed to be heretical, such as, number one, uh, denying the deity of Yeshua and or the Holy Spirit. Number two, polytheism, meaning belief in more than one God, and number three, modalism, which is the belief that God is only one person revealing himself in different modes. So those, those three ideas were considered to be um, contrary to the scripture, right? So denying the deity of Yeshua and the Holy Spirit. So there are some, there are some that argued that the Holy Spirit was a created being, just similar to an angel. The Holy Spirit was kind of like an angel. There are some people who, who suggested that. And really, the essential question here is, is the Holy Spirit a creature, or is he creator? Right? Because you're either one or the other. You can't be both, and you can't be neither. Right? In our understanding of God and the universe, there's, there's everything that exists can be divided into two categories. There's God, and there's everything else. <laughs> there's creator, and there's creation created things, things that have been created by God. So on which side of the line is the Holy Spirit? Right? That's, that's the issue. And so the conviction of the church fathers was that the Holy Spirit is clearly on the side of God, on that, of that dividing line. So polytheism, which is the belief in more than one God. Now, you know, despite what people think, the early church fathers were deeply committed to defending the infinite oneness of God. They, they knew from the scriptures that God is one. Hero Israel, the Lord of God, is the Lord is one. And they were deeply committed to that. I know often people today say, oh yeah, well they, they taught belief in three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, no, they, they would have been very appalled at such an allegation, Right? they were deeply committed to trying to defend the oneness of God, but within the context of trying to explain other things that irked their philosophical minds, right? So, all that to say, um, they saw polytheism as a heresy, and legitimately so, because it's contrary to scripture, obviously, right? That's an obvious one. Uh, the third one, modalism. So, here's the basic question. And uh, let's let's talk about let's talk about Messiah for a minute because with the Holy Spirit it's harder to illustrate. But with with Yeshua, was um, if if you if you believed in modalism, you would say, well, Yeshua was really just God, like, but he clothed himself in flesh and and uh, 
um, th that was just an expression of God, just like we see God can express himself through a burning bush, God can express himself through the cloud of glory in the tabernacle, God can express himself through Yeshua, right? And, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty close, like that, that, that sounds good. Where you run into issues is, well, how do you explain the fact that Yeshua was sent by God? How do you explain when Yeshua prays to God, the Father? Was he talking to himself? Right? How, how do you, you know, when Yeshua prays, not my will but thine, what, how can you even make sense of that if Yeshua and God are, are, you know, you can put an equal sign between the two and they're exactly the same thing. God the Father and Yeshua are exactly the same thing. How can he, how can he say, not my will but thine? That doesn't make any sense, right? So, so the church fathers saw the philosophical necessity of seeing a distinction between the person of Yeshua and the person of God the Father, right? Do you at least, do you, do you see kind of the problem that they had there with modalism? So, yeah, and as we'll see later, they also saw the scriptures as portraying an independent will for the Holy Spirit, right? So when Yeshua says, not my will, but thine, that's implying Yeshua has a will and God the Father has a will, and they're two different wills. But nonetheless, Yeshua submitted his will to the Father's, right? He's our example as well. And we're going to see that the Holy Spirit, it seems, has a will that's independent as well. So what do you make of all that? Now, as, a, as an aside, right, if you look at these three heresies that that are the the trinity was trying to avoid so you know they they put together this doctrine of the trinity to avoid these three things well in modern days uh people that deny the trinity say well i don't believe in the trinity um usually end up accepting one of those three things right um usually not number two usually they don't accept polytheism which is a good thing <laughs> But uh, even, in, even in the Messianic movement, there's a minority of, of people that will reject the deity of Yeshua because they say, well, I don't want to believe in the Trinity, and so they're forced to try and reconcile this in their mind by rejecting the deity of Yeshua. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of people will believe in some form of modalism, right? Um, oneness theology, I think, essentially taught a form of modalism that God is God is just one person but reveals himself in different modes all right um, I guess the only thing I'll say is that I think it's important for us as students of the word to at least know a little bit about the history of some of these debates that went on and realize that some of these novel ideas that people come up with have already been suggested a long time ago, right? We're, we're, we're not the first to come up with some of these ideas, and, and there might be valid reasons for rejecting them, right? So, anyway, that's, that's the conclusion that the Church Fathers came to, is that the best that they could describe God was to say he's... One in essence, but three in persons. That was their way of trying to wrap their minds around all this, right? So in the definition of God that emerged, the Holy Spirit is God, but he is not God the Father. Does that make sense? He's fully God, but he's a separate person from the Father and from the Son. Um, and there were other debates that went on as well in the early church. For example, is the Holy Spirit a son of God? Just like Jesus is a son of God? That was one of the questions that was raised. Even Origen brought that up, right? Well, if that's the case, then that would mean there's two sons of God. So how, can, how is it that Yeshua is called the only begotten son of God? How can he be only begotten if there's others that have been begotten, right? You see the problem here? So eventually the church fathers came to they came up with this distinction. Christ is begotten, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from God. So we talk about the begottenness of the Son and the procession 
of the spirit, right? And there's a, dis a difference between the two. You have to maintain that distinction, right? And then there, there erupted the debate over whether the, whether the spirit proceeds from just the father or from both the father and the son, because that's an important distinction, right? And that issue literally split the church down to today. That's what divided Eastern Orthodoxy from Roman Catholicism and even Protestantism. Roman Catholics and Protestants followed suit, believe in what they call the double procession of the Holy Spirit, that he proceeds from both the Father and the Son, whereas the Eastern Church said, no, he just proceeds from the Father. That was called the filioque controversy. And so, you know, for us sitting here today in 2017, we might think, well, that's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, really? Who argues over this stuff? What does it matter? What's the big deal here, right? Who even cares? The Bible doesn't give us a systematic flow chart explaining the inner workings and the relationship between the Father and Messiah and the Ruach, right? So why were the church fathers so obsessed with trying to figure this stuff out? It's like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, right? What practical application does that have for my life? Well, the reason why they were obsessed with it is because it was integral to their culture and their worldview. And the fact is that throughout history, different people in different times and different cultures struggle with different things pertaining to God's word. And as an example, a lot of people in our culture today really struggle with, you know, when you read in the Torah about some of the mass killings that took place, you know, God commanded the Israelites to go and wipe out the Midianites and um, the Amalekites or even the Canaanites, right? Things like that. And how could a loving God have commanded things like that, right? And, and some people will even say, well, how is that different than the Holocaust? And, you know, people really struggle with that kind of stuff today. People struggle to accept God with these things, right? It's a big enough struggle that some people end up losing their faith over what you might call humanitarian issues in the Bible. But guess what? People didn't struggle with that as much in other eras or cultures of history, right? Several hundred years ago, that was not the big crisis of faith for people. This is, this is a typically modern struggle. Another good example for today is, is how can a loving God decide to send huge numbers of people to hell? You know, even the concept that eternal punishment exists is a huge crisis of faith for some people today. And that's why you have all sort of alternative explanations out there. Uh, people trying to explain away passages, talk about God's judgment to come to the conclusion that, well, in the end, everyone gets saved. Universalism, right? You know, and again, the extent and scope of this struggle, I believe, is a modern phenomenon. In others, other areas of history, people had no problem envisioning the wicked going to hell. Sometimes they were quite happy at the thought of it, right? I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you see the point, right? So, so imagine, you know, imagine the church fathers looking at believers today and saying how come they're so obsessed with trying to come up with these explanations for humanitarian issues and how can a loving god send people to hell why are they so obsessed with that the bible never worried about that stuff why are they worried about it well it's because it affects people's faith right it affects people's ability to live a healthy spiritual life when they struggle with these kinds of things inside right and so you know, we look back at the early church, and they had their own struggles. They were different struggles that they faced. You know, they were faced with, how can I believe in a God that is not philosophically conceivable? How can I believe in a God that I can't explain his nature? I mean, how can you even accept something that you don't know what the nature of it is, right? Right? 
And, and so, you know, they have all these struggles and questions and, and wrestlings going on because of their culture, because of their, the world that they lived in, right? So, you know, their, their goal was not to maliciously try to corrupt the true teachings of the scriptures by adding their own philosophical interpolations, right? Rather, they're simply trying to answer the nagging questions of their day. They're trying to figure this stuff out for themselves. And it's okay if we don't have those same nagging questions, right? I think some of those questions we still have, but a lot of those we feel like, well, those, why did they even argue over that? Well, I guess, I guess it was a big thing for them and they felt like it was really important, right? Anyway, the moral of the story is that God is bigger than we can ever know. We can't put God in a box, right? There are some mysteries that we may never find answers to. But, and this is important, we don't have to know God fully in order to know him truthfully. Right? We can know God in truth, even if we don't know him inside and out 100%. We'll never know him fully, right? We can trust that his word is true. He has revealed himself to us truthfully, and we can believe it and put our faith in him and rest in the fact that he knows what we don't know, <laughs> right? We can leave it in his hands. So anyway, that's the early Trinitarian debates in a nutshell and um, some, of the, some of the issues and the debates that went on. Let's take a quick look at rabbinic Jewish theology on the Holy Spirit. Um, so like we saw in session three, the theology of the Holy Spirit in Judaism developed differently than it did in Christianity, obviously, right? And some of this, and I, I think we'll see, uh, by the, especially by the time you get to the third century with uh, Constantine and the councils that went on, uh, we see very much both Judaism and Christianity forming in reaction against each other. Right? So some of the theologies that erupted and some of the stuff we see in both in the early church and in rabbinic Judaism is reacting against, well, we're not them. We're not them. We're going to define ourselves as not them. So the church is like, we're not Jews. We're not, we're not anything like that. We're different. And we're going to form our theology this way. Whereas in Judaism, they're like, we're not Christians. That's not us. We're forming our theology this way. So anyway, we see we see kind of some reactions going on on both sides, right? So, uh, and we looked at this quote back in session three, the Holy Spirit in the dogma of the early church becomes a co-eternal hypostasis in the doctrine of the Trinity, meaning a, a, a person in the Trinity, right? Ruach HaKodesh, on the other hand, is a didactic dramatization of God's immediacy and not a substantive intermediary between God and man. So in other words, they're saying that in Judaism, um, Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is an it. It's an expression of God's power and his presence, you know, like just like God's arm or God's face. Uh, God's Spirit is not considered to be a person, per se, right? And so modern Jewish authors, when they write, Holy Spirit, they don't capitalize it, right? It's just, you know, Holy Spirit in undercase letters. And a lot of scholars follow suit, right? <coughs> so, but even though the Holy Spirit is not treated as a person per se, we do see instances of vivid personification in rabbinic literature. And we already looked at this in session three, so I'm not going to go into detail in this, but no. Of course, there's a subtle difference between personification and personhood. The difference is really subtle, right? And it might depend on your presupposition. If you come assuming that, well, the Holy Spirit's not a person, you're going to call it personification. If you come assuming that the Holy Spirit is a person, you might say, oh, see, here's some proof. Depends which way you look at it, right? What's the, by the way, what's the difference? What, what's, what's the difference between saying that someone's a person and saying that something is just a personification. Right. 
Right. Personification, giving characteristics of a living thing to something that's not. Like Lady Wisdom in the book of Proverbs, right? That's an example of personification. Wisdom's not a person, right? Wisdom is an abstract concept, but we're going to talk about wisdom as though it's a lady saying words and doing things, and right? So again, if you're going to call it personification, you have to come with the presupposition that it's not a person to begin with, right? Anyway, so for example, we read about the Holy Spirit speaking, Holy Spirit acting as a defense counsel for Israel, or the Holy Spirit leaving Israel and returning to God. These are some examples of personification. Um, now, personification emerges even, perhaps even more strongly in Second Temple Jewish literature. And there's a fascinating study by Andrew Pitts and Seth Pollinger where they argue that certain streams of Second Temple Judaism saw the Holy Spirit as an independent agent of God, yet fully God, right? So they refer to this as functional spirit monotheism. I'm going to give a couple quotes from their study. Uh, they say, the ancient and Second Temple documents evidence, at the very least, a clear stream of functional spirit monotheism. The spirit was incorporated primarily into the creational identity of yod heh vav -Heh, but, but into ruler and redeemer-revealer functions as well, especially through new creation. The spirit was not an intermediary agent, nor was the spirit undifferentiatable from the father of Israel's unique instantiation of the divine essence. And further, the spirit seems to possess agency on the one hand, and yet shares in the divine identity through creation, sovereignty, and redemption, revelation on the other hand. And further, within certain quarters, the spirit was viewed as, at the very least, an agent-like being, intimately associated with the exclusive divine identity of yod heh vav -Heh, through especially creation, but also providence and redemption. Does that all make sense? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> So, in other words, they're arguing that a clear precedent exists in Second Temple Judaism before the rabbinic era for seeing the Holy Spirit as being at the same time both divine and distinct from the Father, right? Seeing the Holy Spirit as a person may not be so foreign to Judaism after all, is their argument. And they go on to argue that this was a precedent for the apostles' understanding of Yeshua, as well as their understanding of the Holy Spirit, right? They saw Yeshua as to be identified with the one true God, in, within the identity of the one true God, and yet having his own sense of agency or personhood, right? So anyway, it's a fascinating study. If you're interested in reading the article, I can send you the link online. Uh, these guys are kind of going upstream in terms of um, conventional scholarship, but I think they're I think they're on to something here, and uh, it's at the very least it shows that there's there's a bit of a precedent in Judaism. The apostles aren't rebelling against Judaism in the way they describe the Holy Spirit, as we'll look at in just a moment. Okay, another aspect to Jewish theology on the Holy Spirit that we saw in session three is that we often see ruach hakodesh used interchangeably with the word shechinah. Shekinah, right? They're both used as an evasive synonym of God's name. And, uh, but the primary difference between the two is that in rabbinic literature, the Holy Spirit speaks, right? It'll say something like, the Holy Spirit says, and then quote an excerpt from the Tanakh, from the Bible. So, Shekinah is a post-biblical Hebrew word for God's manifest presence, his visible glory that appeared in the tabernacle and the temple. The Bible doesn't have a special name or title for this. It just calls it God's glory, right? God's glory came into the temple and the cloud filled it and, you know, that sort of thing, right? It talks about that. Um, so at, later, people began using the term Shekhinah to describe it. And much later, like in the medieval era, Shekhinah takes on lots of mystical connotations. It becomes one of the Sephirot and the Sephirotic tree. It becomes, well, I, I don't want to get into that. <laughs> we're not getting, we're, and it becomes like the feminine side of God and all this stuff. Yeah, we're not going to go there. That's, that's a lot later. 
But anyway, it raises the question for us, is the Holy Spirit the same as God's manifest presence in the tabernacle and temple? If not, what's the difference between the two? We'll revisit that question in just a moment. So, okay, I want to look at some of the biblical evidence going on here. And there's, there's two primary questions that, that we're looking at and looking for answers in the scriptures, right? Number one, is the Holy Spirit a person? And number two, is the Holy Spirit God or divine, right? So typically in, um, in theological textbooks, the approach is, you know, you find passages that ascribe to the Holy Spirit attributes of a person, you know, mind, will, and emotions, and, um, and passages that ascribe to the Holy Spirit attributes of divinity, eternality, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, that sort of thing. And then your case is made, right? That's, that's the typical approach. So, in asking, is the Holy Spirit a person, I have to keep in mind that this is a bit of a trick question because there's no word in Hebrew or in Greek that directly corresponds to the word person. The word person comes from Latin, actually, persona. The word persona means a mask, like, right? Like in, in, the, in the plays that they would do, you would, you would wear this mask, and uh, if, you, if you change to a different character in the middle of, your of the skit, then you pull out a different mask. Now you're a different person, right? So that's where the idea of person comes from. It's from the Latin. And so when we're asking, you know, is the Holy Spirit a person, we're kind of asking <laughs> a question that, well, there's, the Bible's not going to really say right out the Holy Spirit is a person because it doesn't, it doesn't even use those categories of thinking, right? Like that's, anyway, so it's a bit of a trick question right off the bat, but, right. And when we're asking, is the Holy Spirit God? Well, why is this important? One reason is when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, are we filled with God or a creature? Right? Is it, is it God dwelling in us or is it something that God created dwelling in us? That's an important question, right? So anyway, so let's take a quick look at this. I've given you uh, lots of scripture references here. We're not definitely not going to go through all of them, but we might go through some of them here. Um, it's page 175 in your notes. Uh, so the Holy Spirit has the attributes of a person. If we look through the scripture, we see that the Holy Spirit has a mind, the Holy Spirit has a will, and it seems that the Holy Spirit has emotions as well. So it talks about, Paul talks about the mind of the Spirit, right? Knowing the mind of the Spirit, Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2. talks about how the Holy Spirit has a will, 1 Corinthians 12, the Holy Spirit distributes gifts as he wills, right? So the Holy Spirit has a will. And uh, Isaiah 63 and Ephesians 4 talk about grieving the Holy Spirit. You know, that's, that's an emotion, I guess, right? So the Holy Spirit has a mind, has a will, and has emotions. That's the attributes of a person. Here's some other ones. Many times in the scriptures, we see the Holy Spirit speaks, Right? says, the Holy Spirit says, da, 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 or the Holy Spirit spoke, or the Holy, right? All these things that keep coming up. Let's just look at one example, John 16, 13. John 16, 13. Um, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So we, we hear about the Holy Spirit speaking, right? Holy Spirit speaks. Holy Spirit teaches. Uh, we see that in lots of places. The Holy Spirit bears witness. We also see that come up. 
The Holy Spirit leads and guides. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. That's a fascinating one. Let's look at that. Romans 8, 26 to 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, that's a fascinating thing, because, well, in a moment we'll see how we read about Messiah interceding for us, right? We also read about the Holy Spirit interceding for us. But it's different. The Messiah intercedes for us through atonement. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us through prayer. So they both intercede, but it, their intercession takes on different, different forms, different roles. Anyway, the Holy Spirit also sends. Let's look at that example, Acts 13. Verses 2 to 4. Um, mentions about the prophets and teachers at the church in Antioch in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and it goes on. Um, so the Holy Spirit, in this case, the Holy Spirit speaks and sends off these guys as missionaries, right? Uh, other examples, the Holy Spirit can be lied to. You know, how can you lie to oh, wisdom, right? How can you lie to something abstract that implies a, a, a person? The Holy Spirit can be resisted. The Holy Spirit can be insulted. The Holy Spirit can be slandered or blasphemed. Um, those are examples of how the Holy Spirit is treated as a person. And, and also, and this is, this is interesting, uh, in Greek, the word pneuma, which means spirit, uh, is technically a neuter noun. So the way Greek grammar works is um, there's masculine, feminine, or neuter. And if you have a masculine noun, you have to use masculine pronouns. If you have a neuter noun, you have to use neuter pronouns. If you have a feminine noun, you have to use feminine pronouns. But there are some places where the, in, in the apostolic scriptures, and especially in the book of John, we see they break the rules. They break the grammar rules of Greek, and they use a masculine pronoun with the word pneuma. They, they're supposed to use neuter, but they, contrary to grammatical convention, they use masculine. So that's an interesting thing that shows up. They call it a he instead of an it. That's right. So all this to say, you know, you put these things together and, and the, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit as more than just some impersonal force, right? The Holy Spirit be with you is not the same as the force be with you. <laughs> it's different, right? So... Okay, and then deity of the Spirit. So, right, so, we, you know, you can say, well, we've proved the Holy Spirit is a person. Now let's prove that the Holy Spirit is God. Because we might say, well, yeah, the Holy Spirit's a person, but it's not God. It's just some sort of angel or, or something like that, right? Uh, or he's just some sort of angel, or, you know. Um, well, the Holy Spirit is declared to be God. Uh, there's a number of examples of that. Let's look at the one from 2 Corinthians 3. Second Corinthians three verses sixteen to eighteen. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. After we all with unveiled faces behold the glory um, behold the, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So in this place, it's equating the Lord is the Spirit, right? So um, there's also places where we see a quote from the Tanakh, where in the Tanakh, God, God is saying something, and the apostles say, the Holy Spirit said, 
So they're, they're equating the Holy Spirit with God. There's also the attributes of God that belong to God alone that are predicated of the Holy Spirit, right? So, so like uh, eternal, God is eternal, right? Well, we read about how the Spirit is eternal, Hebrews 9.14, the eternal Spirit, right? Well, only God is eternal. So if the Holy Spirit is also eternal, that must mean the Holy Spirit is God. Um, the Holy Spirit knows, you know, ha omniscience, knows all things, 1 Corinthians 2.10. Omnipotent, right? The Holy Spirit is powerful. Omnipresent, the Holy Spirit is everywhere, right? Um, there's some references there for that. Works of God alone done by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gives life. We see the Holy Spirit directing, like in the book of Acts, we see the Spirit directing Philip and directing Paul, sending out missionaries, restraining people, like restraining Paul. Let's, let's take a quick look at that, Acts 16. Because that's an interesting passage. Acts 16, verses 6 to 7. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. That's interesting how the Spirit forbade them, right? Um, we see the Spirit utters prophecy. Acts 21, 11. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt. This is talking about Agabus, the prophet. He took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now that's, that's an interesting phrase, because what do we hear the prophet saying so often in the Tanakh? Thus saith the Lord, right? Here, it's thus saith the Holy Spirit, right? That's a, that's a profound way of putting it. The Holy Spirit represents God's love. The Holy Spirit distributes gifts as he wills. He exercises that divine sovereignty and prerogative. The Holy Spirit brings fellowship. Um, also, we see the Holy Spirit involved in creating the world. Genesis 1-2 is an obvious one. There's some other examples there. Uh, the Holy Spirit involved in regeneration or rebirth. The Holy Spirit involved in sanctification. The Holy Spirit convicting people of sin. The Holy Spirit raising the dead. I mean, these are things only God can do, right? Only God can do those things. And then there are also some passages that we would call triadic passages. And what that means is that that's where you see God the Father, Yeshua, and the Holy Spirit mentioned together as a, th a threesome right? Um, there's a whole bunch of examples I've given you there, but let's just look at a couple. The most famous one, of course, is Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Yeshua instructs people to go out and baptize, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? Everyone knows that phrase, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And um, yeah, Another passage is 1 Corinthians 12. This one's kind of interesting. We already looked at this, but in 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse, uh, verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So do you see how it puts those three in parallel? You've got the Spirit, you've got the Lord, referring to Yeshua, Kurios, and you've got God, right? The Spirit, the Lord, and God. They're put in parallel there. Uh, another example is 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord, Yeshua Messiah, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Right, so he uses those, those same the threesome there. And one last example we'll look at. There's others, but we don't have time to look at all of them. So uh, Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were all called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, you know, Yeshua. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all.
So anyway, so all that to say, you know, the Holy Spirit is put in parallel with, with God and with Yeshua. That also is an argument for the deity of the Holy Spirit. All right, so in my opinion, it's clear that the Bible portrays the Spirit far more personally than a mere attribute of God or an expression of his power and presence, right? It's also clear that he exercises divine prerogatives. He, he does what only God can do. And in this way, the apostles speak very similarly of the Holy Spirit as they speak of Messiah, right? A lot of parallels between the two. Uh, so, for example, they both intercede, both the Spirit and Messiah intercede. Uh, they both give life. They both exercise volition, meaning they have a will. Uh, they both have minds. And, um, yeah, and so we see, we see these put in parallel. And note that the title parakletos in Greek, translated as helper or advocate or paraclete, right? Yeshua says, I will send the helper, the parakletos. Well, what he actually says is, I will send you another helper, Right? So that word, paraclete, is used of Messiah in 1 John, and it's used of the Holy Spirit in the book of John. So there's a parallel between the two, right? Um, so Messiah is now experienced in our lives through the Spirit to the point that he's even identified with the Spirit. 2 Corinthians three, seventeen to 18. And we already looked at this, where it talks about the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Right? And when it says Lord there, you look back in verse 14, it's talking about Messiah, right? the Lord Messiah. So Messiah is Spirit. Right? And 1 Corinthians 15.45, Messiah has become the life-giving Spirit. Right? So... And, and we often see the spirit of Messiah, this phrase, spirit of Messiah, or we, all, we also saw spirit of Yeshua in Acts, right? Messiah dwells in our hearts, and his spirit dwells in our hearts, right? Ephesians 3, Messiah dwells in our hearts, and we see many places where the spirit dwells in our hearts. And here's an example of both, Romans chapter 8. Uh, starting verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Messiah does not belong to him. But if Messiah is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, did you see what Paul did here? First of all, the first time he calls it the Spirit of, the, the spirit of God, and then all of a sudden he switches and calls it the Spirit of Messiah. But it's the same Spirit. Spirit of God and the Spirit of Messiah are the same thing. And then in, in verse 9, he says, he talks about um, the Spirit dwelling in you. In verse 10, he says, Messiah dwelling in you. So it's the same thing, right? Messiah dwelling in you and the Spirit dwelling in you is the same thing. So in other words, when, when we invite Yeshua into our hearts, he comes as his Holy Spirit. Right? He's, it's, not like, it's not like you can say, well, I have Messiah in my heart, but I don't know if I have the Spirit in my heart. It, it doesn't work that way. Right? When you, when you invite Yeshua to come and dwell in your heart, it's his Spirit that comes and dwells in your heart. That's how he dwells in your heart, through his Spirit. Right? So we do, we, you, you don't have one part of God dwelling in you, but another part not. Like, like oh, no, I, I miss, I'm missing this part of God in my life. I've got two God-shaped holes in my life but for two different parts of... No, it doesn't work that way, right? The Spirit is the means by which God indwells people. All right, another issue is... So we looked at these passages that we called triadic passages. I know the word, the word Trinity does, is not found in the Bible, and I'm totally fine with not using it. I, I kind of prefer to use words that are only found in the Bible, but... Sometimes we have to, you know, the word pineapple is never found in the Bible either, so sometimes we have to make do with what we have, right? <laughs> um, but, but anyway, the point is, you know I, know, I know there's a lot of people in the Messianic movement that are not, don't really like the word Trinity or the concept of the Trinity and that sort of thing, and 
you know, because we're like, well, show me in the Bible where, where, where is the Trinity in the Bible? And that's good. You know, uh, we, need to, we need to always be going back to God's word. That's important. Um, but we need to admit that there are places where the Bible speaks of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's biblical. I know to us, maybe that sounds Catholic, but it's not Catholic. It's in the Bible. The Catholics just stole it, right? Let's, let's you know, let's say what's in the Bible is in the Bible, okay? Right? Um, you know, if you don't want to use the word Trinity, that's, that's totally fine. I, I'm, I'm okay with that. But we have to admit that those three occasionally appear together in Scripture and, and that somehow they're describing God and yet somehow there's a distinction going on here. And, and I can't explain it. I can't give you a nice nifty chart that's going to be like, oh, now I get it. I don't get it. <laughs> but I believe that if the Bible says it, it's true, right? I want to believe what the Bible says, even if I don't understand it. So it's a mystery. We don't have to have it all figured out. I'll just put that out there. Another question we talked about briefly is the gender of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, in our, in our day and age, people are very confused about gender. <laughs> and that confusion gets carried over into how we talk about God, too, right? Um, in Hebrew, the word ruach is feminine. It's a feminine word, right? So when it talks about the ruach, it uses she, calls it, calls it a, a her, a she, right? Um, and some people think then that the Holy Spirit is like the, the female part of God somehow, right? And it gets kind of mystical. But the problem is that's not how the Hebrew language works. In Hebrew, you only have masculine or feminine. Everything is a he or a she. There's no it's in Hebrew. You can't, you can't say it in Hebrew. And so another example is the word zeroah. Zeroah is the word for arm in Hebrew, and it's feminine. So when it talks about the mighty arm of God, it calls it a she. It doesn't mean that God's arm is somehow female, right? It's, it's, that's the way the language works. You have to use the word she in order for it to make sense that the she is talking about the arm of God. Does that make sense? Right? It's, uh, and so in Greek, we already talked about, pneuma is, is neuter. But there are places where it uses masculine, talk, calls it a he instead of it, an it, right? Um, even though that's grammatically incorrect, technically, right? We, we need to keep in mind, in the beginning, God created male and female in his image, right? Together, as man and woman together, we comprise the image of God. We are made in his image. Um, neither of us on our own represent the full image of God. But at the same time, the scriptures are consistent in using masculine pronouns to refer to God. God is never called a she, right, or a her, right? God is, God is always a he. And I think we should follow suit, right? I think we should do what, use that kind of language scripturally. And all this to say, we have no compelling reason in English to call the Holy Spirit a she, Right? It's not like it's a required element of English grammar. And if we do so, we're introducing um, a subtlety that is not there in Hebrew. Right? We're making a statement when we do that in English. And it's not a statement that I believe is in line with God's word. So all that to say, I think, I think we have a precedent for calling the Holy Spirit a he. And I think that's okay. <laughs> I'm not going to be a stickler on this. I know some people are like, well, you, you should never call the Holy Spirit an it. Uh, you know, I, I think that's good. That's okay to follow that. You probably noticed sometimes I slip up, sometimes I say it, sometimes I say he, but that's okay. Um, the Holy Spirit, yeah. I'll leave it at that. Another question is, should we pray to the Holy Spirit? There's no direct biblical example of anyone praying to the Holy Spirit, right? We have examples of people praying in the Spirit or, or through the, or by the Spirit, um, but not specifically to the Spirit. But we need to keep in mind that Holy Spirit is sometimes used essentially as a name of God. It's referring to God, right? So if we're, if we're talking to God and we we call him Holy Spirit. I don't think 
there's anything intrinsically wrong with that. Personally, I think we overcomplicate things sometimes when we try and dissect things and separate things and distinguish and, and this and that. And, you know, it's, it's not like I have a better chance of speaking in tongues if I pray to the Holy Spirit than if I pray to God the Father. It doesn't work that way, right? It's not like, well, you know, I, I, prayed, to, I prayed to Yeshua about this and he didn't answer, so now I'm going to pray to the Holy Spirit. No, it doesn't work. That's not, that's not how God works, right? In the end of the day, we believe God is one, right? Another thing to consider is that the Holy Spirit, it's not the nature of the Holy Spirit to seek the limelight, right? Yeshua says, John 16, 14, he will glorify me. The Spirit will glorify Yeshua. The Spirit always draws us to Yeshua, points us to Yeshua, right? So, yeah, I'm not taking a hard line on that, but those are some things to think about. So I think the, Spirit, the scriptures speak of the Holy Spirit in a very personal way. He's more than just a force or attribute of God, and he's certainly not a creature. But at the same time, I think we need to recognize the limits of all this. And here's a quote from Tim Haig. He says, The issue of personhood, as relates to God in general, is entirely missing in the Jewish debates and dialogues. While God is surely outside the realm of creation in terms of his eternal existence, he is nonetheless regularly referred to by anthropological terminology, meaning stuff that you would normally think of as pertaining to humans, right? If, for example, he has eyes, hands, feet, he rejoices, he grieves, he sorrows, he sees, touches, feels, walks, desires, etc. One's relationship with Hashem is couched in human terms, the same terms we use for interpersonal relationships with each other. So you read the Bible and it's, you know, it, it, it describes God in these ways. It's not afraid to talk about God grieving or, or being joyful or, 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 or uh, you know, having hands or things like that, even though we might say, well, technically God doesn't have any hands. He's not a person. He's not... The Bible's not afraid to speak that way, right? It is not then until the Hellenized Gentiles began to stream into the synagogues through the preaching of Yeshua by the apostles that the need to find an answer to the question of composition of the Godhead surfaces. It is not surprising either to find that the Greek answer to this Greek question was cast in very Greek or Western terms. How each part functioned and how these functions overlapped or cancelled each other out became essential questions requiring precise answers. In attempting to describe the mystery of God, the Greek and Latin fathers gave formulations which, though they may describe biblical truth, are nonetheless often interpretive of it and clearly additional to it. I think that sums it up well. All right. Well, I think we're going to skip over this section on the Spirit and the Shekinah. Um, the question is basically, is the Holy Spirit the same as the Shekinah? In other words, is the Holy Spirit the same as God's manifest presence in the temple? And I'm going to suggest that the answer is no, just because... We hear about God's glory and his presence being described as something that was visible, whereas the Holy Spirit is not described as something visible, right? And another distinction is, we talked about this in session four, ruach in Hebrew refers to moving air, right? Wind or breath. It's something dynamic. It's not, you can't, you can't put wind in a box, right? So what happens if you put wind in a box? the box comes apart. <laughs> it's not wind anymore, right? Once you stop it, it's not wind, right? So, so there's something about ruach that's dynamic. Ruach can only dwell in something alive. You have to be alive in order for the ruach to dwell in you, right? So, so we never hear of the ruach sitting in the tabernacle, right? Just sitting there. Whereas God's presence, it dwells there, right? So, so I think we could make a distinction there. I'm not going to be hard and fast on all that, but um, there might be parallels, right? Like Paul talks about how we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. So just like the temple housed God's manifest presence, we house his spirit. There's a, uh, an analogy there. But I don't think it's one and the same thing. That's my suggestion. All right, let's, let's conclude this session. Um, 
with just a couple takeaway points. So, first of all, the Holy Spirit is fully God, but in some mysterious way, the Holy Spirit is distinct from God the Father. Don't ask me to explain how it all works. But I think the scriptures are clear in describing the Holy Spirit this way, and I don't think we should be afraid to describe the Holy Spirit that way either. The Holy Spirit is God's presence within us, right? It's not just God's presence floating around, it's God's presence that comes and dwells inside real, living, and breathing human beings, which is an amazing concept, right? The Holy Spirit mediates between us and God through prayer. So there's an intercessory role of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is able to draw us to the Father and represent us to him in some way, right? And the Holy Spirit glorifies Yeshua, as we talked about before. So all this stuff can start to get a little mystical when you t delve too far, I think. And, and historically, that's what often happened in Christianity and in Judaism. Um, you start to get into... Uh, philosophy often turned into mysticism. So I don't think we need to go that far, though. I think, I think the Bible is sufficient in learning about who God is, about what he's done for us. And in the end, God ought to be much more to us than just a doctrine, right? He's more than just a theology. We don't just learn about him as this abstract concept, right? He reveals himself to us in his word, but he also reveals himself to us in our lives on a daily basis. And we experience him and his love for us. So let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your spirit. We thank you for your word. And thank you that you have revealed yourself truthfully to us and that we can know you and that we don't have to doubt whether your word is true. We know it's true. And we praise you and we bless you. And we ask that you would guide our hearts and that you would lead us in all truth. I pray that you would guide us the rest of this day as we discuss together and that you would be glorified in us and through us. In Yeshua's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.